And so we're looking at a series of encounters with Jesus in this season. Um, and this week we're looking at the parable, the famous parable of the prodigal son. Or maybe it's the parable of the two lost sons. Or maybe it's the parable of the outrageously loving father. I think it's all of those things. So the context for the passage that Mary just read to us is, is Jesus is surrounded by large crowds. They're traveling with him. Uh, and at the beginning of this chapter, uh, we read that tax collectors and sinners were, were crowding in on him. And there were some Pharisees there as well um, and teachers of the law. And they were muttering to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus tells three stories uh, in sort of rapid succession. Uh, and the first one uh, is a story about a man who throws a party uh, after finding one lost sheep among his 100 sheep. And then he goes to another story about a woman who throws a party again after finding one lost coin amongst 10, lost, uh, amongst 10 coins. And then he tells this story about a man who throws a party after finding one lost son amongst his two sons. So this is a story about two sons and a loving father, an outrageously loving father. So first we have the younger son. I got a little quick, quick recap of the story. Um, so we have this story. Um, uh, and the younger son asks for his inheritance. Now, let's be clear, asking back in those times, and even in contemporary society in the Middle East, going up to your, going up to your father and say, I want my estate now. I mean, even, in, even here in, in the West, that's pretty a shocking thing to do. Uh, and essentially, if you speak to people in this context, in the Middle East, and especially going back to the time Jesus was, uh, was uh, speaking and teaching and living, what this request meant was the younger son wished his father dead. I want my stuff now. I'm out of here. I don't need you. I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Give me what's mine. Imagine how that felt to the father. And what do you think uh, the listeners at the time were, were expecting um, the father to do then? Well, pr pr probably to be... Uh, you know, to kick, to boot the son out of the house, maybe. Um, maybe to give him a, a, a little beating, a good sort of um, first century Palestine beating. But even more astounding is what the father then does. He actually, he says, okay. He divides his property. <coughs> and, you know, if there were two sons, probably the older would have got two-thirds, the younger would have got a third. Uh, and, that, and, and basically, selling property means land, because that's really the, that's what the wealth was. The wealth was in the land. So this meant the father was giving away a third of his land, having to sell it and convert it to cash. But even more so, the father endured the rejection of his son. So then the, the son heads off. We know the story. He squanders his wealth in crazy living and wild living and eventually there's a crisis and there's a famine and he has squandered it all. And then he comes to his senses in a crisis in the, amidst the pigs. 
And he comes up with a plan. I'll go to my father. Uh, I'll tell him I've sinned against heaven and against him. I'll tell him I'm no longer worthy to be your sons and, and make me like one of your hired servants. He has a plan. And so he travels to his father. A while he was a long way off, the father was looking for him, had been looking for him. You imagine him daily saying, is this the day my son is going to come back? Waiting, okay? And then he rushes out. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Uh, and apparently the, the, the actual, the, 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 the correct translation is he threw himself on his son's neck. He pounced on him. And then the son begins to unroll his plan and say, look, but before even he cuts him off and before he gets a chance to, to unveil his amazing, his plan to try and get back in or at least find it, maybe to get back one day into his father's good books, his father says, no, he's not having any of it. And also just this image of this patriarch. Let's remember, patriarchs didn't run in those days. Uh, and they typically had these long vestments. Can you imagine that? Running with this long vestment. Having to hike them and, and show your legs as you run. That's what young children did. I mean, they, all these images, they're so countercultural. People would have just found this story so shocking. And then he puts the ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet, puts a robe on him. And essentially re-adopts him as his son, envelops him, and then they celebrate. And then the narrative now switches, doesn't it, to the older brother. And the older brother, of course, now Jesus, having spoken first to all the tax collectors and sinners and all of those through history who empathize with them, to the younger son, he now turns to the Pharisees and the older son. And what's the older son's response? Well, he gets angry. He's angry. He says, all those years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a single goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, who has squandered your, your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And let's remember, fat, you know, these fattened calves, this was, this was, I mean, A, people almost never ate meat. But B, they had this special fattened calf, which was for the most important big celebrations. And the father responds tenderly. He goes out to find him, doesn't he? Just like he went out to the son, he went out to the older son as well. And he responds tenderly. And then there's this cliffhanger that we're left with at the end. What will the older brother do? And arguably, this might be one of the best known of the parables. And I wondered, why is this? Why, why is it the one we so often come back to? And I think it's because within each of us, there is a longing. A longing for home. A longing for fullness, completeness. Augustine, St. Augustine put it this way. Oh Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or Psalm 42, where we read, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
where can I go and meet with God? Many artists have painted this parable, almost always focusing on the moment when the father embraces the son. And here are two of the images I always think of. The one on the left is Rembrandt, and more of that in a moment. And this is when the father is embracing the son. Uh, if you can see the feet, where they're just the, 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 there's almost nothing left. There's some broken sandals. He's tattered and torn, but he still wears the dagger on the right. I think you can just see it, which is the symbol of his adoption. And the father is welcoming and holding him. And on the right, you have this beautiful image uh, I think Charlie Mackesy has done so many of these images, but this image of being held by the Father. And I think Catherine was telling me, I think there's even one of those paintings or a copy of it, I think, in the, in the vestry. So go and have a look at it, maybe. They're beautiful images. Let's ke but keep them up there as we go through. Let's hold that thought in mind. So I googled... This, this, this scene of being hugged, held. So I googled the benefits of hugging. <laughs> and it's worth, worth seeing what comes up. So, so some of the things that came up, it's, it's the power of a hug, one thing was titled, and 11 benefits of a proper hug. Seven powerful physical and mental health effects of hugging. Eight reasons why you need at least eight hugs a day. In 1996, Greg Norman, who was one of the most famous golfers of the time, lost the US Masters golf tournament to his friend Nick, Fal Nick Faldo, who's a British player. Nick, uh, Greg Norman's Australian. And after the game, uh, Faldo gave Norman a consoling hug, and Norman burst into tears on the 18th green. And during a subsequent interview, uh, Norman explained, I wasn't crying because I lost, he said. I've lost a lot of golf tournaments and I'm going to lose a lot more. I cried because I've never had a hug like that in my whole life. This is where we're meant to be. In that hug, in that embrace. in the Father's loving arms and loving embrace. This is truly our home. This is the place we are made for, held and loved and known unconditionally with nothing to prove, seen and accepted and loved as we truly are, completely known, free to be our truest, most real selves. No pretenses, no false personas, no disguises. And it's only from this place that we are free to live life to the full as God intends for each of us. I think, as I was preparing for this, I really feel this is what the Lord wanted to put in front of each of us this morning. I was to say, this is where I want you to be. This is where you should be. This is where home is for you. But do we feel there? Do we feel that is the place we're at? Is this where we are? Maybe we're not sure. Maybe we find ourselves 
elsewhere in this story, still in maybe a foreign land, in exile, not home. So what keeps us back from this place? What stops us abiding in the Father's loving embrace? Well, the three things I just want to talk briefly about, which came to my mind as I reflected on what holds me back. First, like the younger son at the start of the story, I'm searching for love and acceptance in all sorts of places in the foreign land, none of which can deliver in the ways I long for. Henri Nouwen wrote a really famous book, a beautiful book, where he talked about his stepping into this parable uh, and empathizing with the younger son and then the older son and then the father uh, and how he encountered and stepped into the story through the painting of Rembrandt, that painting we were looking at just now. Uh, and he traveled to um, the, uh, the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg where it is and he sat under it for days and then wrote this book. And he wrote this. Over and over again I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and run off to faraway places searching for love. This is the great tragedy of my life and of the lives of so many I meet on my journey. Somehow I have become deaf to the voice that calls me beloved. I have left the only place where I can hear that voice. I have gone off desperately hoping that I would find somewhere else what I could no longer find at home. As long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you, if you're good-looking, if you're intelligent, if you're wealthy. The world's love is always and always will be conditional. He writes, addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment. Accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and so on. And these create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs and condemn us to futile quests in the distant country, leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. In these days of increased addictions, we've wandered away from our father's home and from his loving embrace. For at least the first half of my career, I was driven by the need to prove to people around me that I was smart and capable and had what it takes. So I was always looking for the next job, the next step, the next place where I could move up the status of job and wealth and income, and so, but particularly status. And it drove me in some ways it drove me out of university to try and find the best job I could find and then the best again. And eventually I arrived at what I perceived was the best job. 
uh, this outfit called McKinsey, a strategy consultant, a strategy consultancy. And actually, I tried to join them at university, but failed. And then I tried again a few years later and failed. And then I finally did get in, in sort of 27, 28, 29. And I got in, and I got straight in. And then I was there. I'd arrived. And then about three or four years later, I really, I mean, it was a wonderful place to be for a few years. But then I found myself saying, what next? Is this it? And then I had a bit of a midlife crisis in a good way. A bit like the younger son, I came to my senses and went on a profound journey of rediscovering and listening to God about what he wanted me to do with my life, which eventually led me in a very different direction. Second, what else holds me back from the Father's loving embrace? Well, there are times when I, I long to be back in the Father's embrace. I know that's where I need to, I know that's the right place, yeah? but I feel I'm not good enough. I'm too broken, I'm too full of sin. I've chosen to believe that lie that God cannot and does not love me. The younger son eventually came to his senses and remembered his father and acknowledging his own brokenness, sin and the pain he had caused he comes up with this plan. He says, right, I'm going I'm to set out and go back to my father. And I'm going to tell him I've sinned against you and against heaven. And I'm gonna, he's going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know that. So make me like one of your servants. And the commentators kind of say, and what he probably had in mind, although Jesus doesn't say it, is... And then I will earn my way back into my father's loving acceptance. I'll earn my way back as I earn and pay off this debt. If I work hard enough, if I sort myself out well enough, if I fix myself, then maybe the father will love me. But the father's having none of it, is he? He's having none of it. The son rolls out his plan and cuts him off and just pounces on him and embraces him and showers him with love and puts on the robe and the ring and reinstates him as his adopted, as his son. And then they feast and celebrate. This is, I think we need to remember that, this is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus brings. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is precisely in our broken, lost, and sinful state that we are welcomed and loved unconditionally by God. No strings attached. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's remember, he was surrounded by, you know, the most of the people were tax collectors and sinners around him. This would have been good news to them. I remember in Wales, um, uh, again, uh, uh, this is a, a number of years ago, but I was really struggling with this whole thing about, you know, I'm just so messed up. Most of my mind was spending, spent thinking, I am messed up. I am uh, sinful. I am, I keep doing the same things again and again and again and again. And my mind will go round and round and round those things rather than turning to God who loves me. And uh, through a variety of extraordinary incidents, I ended up, in Wales on this boot camp with John Eldridge, 
who was over for the, like, the first time ever uh, and running this, this camp for, uh, for men. Uh, and of course, we were up on a mountain and, and doing those kinds of things that men do, uh, apparently. Um, uh, and uh, and we, there, there was, he got us to write two lists, and, on, and I've still got the note in my, my journal. On the left-hand side, there were all these things about how I see myself. It was broken, messed up, failed, you know, da-da-da. A long list of the way I see myself. And then he got us to write on the right, how does God see you? And all these beautiful words came up. And I kind of looked at them. I thought, okay, well, yeah, but I really want to hear that. So then he sent us out. He said, right, go out onto the hills, onto the mountains, and speak with God. And I thought, well, God doesn't really speak to me by that, but I'll go. And so I wandered off. And it was a beautiful evening. And I wandered along a path, and I felt prompted just to sit down. And I sat on a log beside a road. And I, felt, I just felt encouraged to write down in my journal what I saw. So I started writing down, and it was the, the top of a valley with a beautiful view. I can still see it, and the sun was setting. And I wrote down all these words. I felt God to say, write down what you see. So I said, well, it's, it's this beautiful view. It's colorful. It's full of light. It's alive. It's rich. It's glorious. It's creative. It's fruitful. It's abundant. And then in a flash, I felt the Lord say, that's how I see you. And in that moment, you know, I was trying to think, what moments have I felt that loving embrace? And I went out saying, Lord doesn't speak to me. And there I have it all written down, even beautiful. It's there, that loving embrace. Third, sometimes, so first, you know, I, 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 I'm off in the wild land. I'm off, I'm off in wild living. I'm hunting for love elsewhere. Or actually, I know where love is, but I don't think I'm, an, I'm worth it. Finally, sometimes, whilst knowing that I'm beloved, the realities and pressures and distractions of life crowd in on me. My mind is consumed with the urgent and the, inter, and the immediate. Life is so noisy that the quiet voice of a loving God whispering to me, Matthew, you are my beloved, is drowned out. I know that time with God in his silence, in his word, in his presence is the place from which I need to start each day. Yet so often I struggle to take that time to rest with him, to listen to him, to feel his loving gaze, to hear his quiet voice. And when I don't, I'm always the worse for it in that day. I remember walking uh, again in the lakes, heading up, if you know the lakes, heading up the Langdale Pikes, uh, up into the hills, and we've got a long walk ahead of us, me and three friends, and we're trying to get over to Honister Pass, where there's a youth hostel where we're going to stay. Uh, and it really is, it's a, it's, a, it's a good walk, and we wanted to sort of take in some of the peaks on the way. And so I was cra heading a cracking pace as we headed across Bowfell. And then Pete, my friend, says to me, Matthew, slow down or you'll miss the view slow down or you'll miss the view and those words have echoed with me ever since Matthew are you living at such a pace that you are not seeing the beauty 
my beauty, encountering me in all of creation around you. So what might we do in closing to enter into and remain in the Father's loving embrace? Well, three sort of quick thoughts. So firstly, I'm sorry, before I go, I recognize I haven't spent a lot of time talking about the older brother. Forgive me. This is a very, this, this, you could preach uh, a year of sermons on this single parable. Uh, so forgive me, but do read um, uh, Henri Nouwen's book if you want to go a little bit deeper. This is an amazing book, the best book I've ever read on this parable, by the way. Henri Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So back to some closing thoughts. So firstly, uh, do not fear the inevitable crises when they come, because they will. But even more so, because in them, there lies the opportunity to come to your senses. Yeah, that's what happened to the younger son. It was precisely, it, if the crisis had not come, he would not have come to his senses. It was the crisis that was the trigger point that knocked him out of the groove of his comfortable, well, not very comfortable by that point, but this, this life he was in. You know, I think so for so many of us, especially in Western society, as followers of Jesus, we're kind of in this, in this comfortably numb rut of life. And we need to be knocked out of it to wake up and come to our senses. Don't fear the inevitable crisis because if we allow the crisis to and we turn to our loving God in it, we will soon find the loving embrace of a loving God who's standing, looking for us, waiting for us, calling us home. Secondly, maybe practice the spiritual habits that Jesus modeled and taught? Why was it that so many of the practices, the habits that Jesus exhorted us to not only learn about, but to do day in, day out, are about creating space to realize that we are embraced and loved and held by a loving Father? Sabbath. In our home group, we're really focusing on the practice of 24 hours of Sabbath. Not just a couple of hours on Sunday morning. Uh, and we're, we're exploring kind of four rhythms of Sabbath, of the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is about stopping. Resting. And in that space of stopping and resting then delighting in the embrace of Father, Son, and Spirit, and then worshipping. But all those other practices that Jesus exhorts and puts in front of us and models for us and tells us to practice, put into practice, Sabbath, silence, solitude, gratitude, all these are designed to help us reacquaint ourselves with the Father's embrace and to come home again, day in, day out. Finally, above all, learn, if you don't know, know, learn and know 
and understand and remember that you are beloved by God. You are God's beloved. God has never pulled back his arms, never withheld his blessing and love, never stopped considering you as his beloved. God loves you so much that you are left free to leave home and go. God's love and blessing on you is there from the beginning. You may have left it and you may keep on leaving it, but the Father is always looking for you, waiting for you with outstretched arms to receive you back and whisper again in your ear, you are my beloved, on you my favour rests. Henri Nouwen writes this in closing. The parable of the prodigal son is a story that speaks about a love that existed before any rejection was possible and that will still be there after all rejections have taken place. It is the first and everlasting love of a God who is father as well as mother. It is the fountain of all true human love. Jesus' whole life and preaching had only one aim, to reveal this inexhaustible, unlimited love of God and to show the way to let that love guide every part of our daily lives. In his painting of the Father, Rembrandt offers me a glimpse of that love. It is the love that always welcomes home and always wants to celebrate. Amen.